freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hello, Coleman Nation residents. Actually, no, it's not a nation resident thing, right? It's a end of the line thing. Hello, fellow members of the end of the line of the culmination. I want to thank you for, for listening today and for joining me in my discussion with one of my oldest friends. And, you know, Jeff and I were not childhood friends, but I've been an adult for so long at this point that Jeff and I qualify as pretty old friends. He's also one of the most interesting people in or out of Washington. He's an activist, a lawyer, First Amendment guy, former media executive, network executive, IP executive. What hasn't he done? He's extremely knowledgeable about lots of the stuff that we talk about here. So I want to welcome Jeff Balaban onto the show. And uh, Jeff, maybe just a couple of words about what you're up to these days. Sure. Well, uh, first of all, glad to be on the show. I didn't notice until just now that Coleman Nation actually comes across like culmination. Yeah, people aren't people because otherwise nation Coleman Nation would already just be a kind of kind of pat. But if the if no one gets if no one, including arguably one of the smartest people I know, which is you, if no one gets the pun, maybe Harmeet was right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that's an evergreen. Harmeet's always right. <laughs> You've known Harvey longer than I have, I think. A little bit. Yep. A little bit, I think. Anyway, so what am I working on? I'm working on a bunch of different things, really emerging. I still feel like I'm emerging from COVID. I still feel like I'm depressurizing. And uh, depending on where you are across this vast land, listening to Culmination, we were hit very hard with it in certain areas in New York. And I know there were people across the country, I'm involved in a bunch of conservative-leaning chats, WhatsApp groups, emails, and there was this whole discussion about it's not real, it's fake, it's a hoax. And I'm thinking, I'm not talking policy, but I literally know people who are dying, and it's not a hoax. It, there could be other things going on. Media could be lying about what you know what's happening. The government certainly could be, but that there are people dying, it's not a hoax. I'm still beginning to emerge from you know, life as Zoom as opposed to actually seeing real people. I haven't been traveling, but surprisingly, um, people assumed that the Trump years would be extremely busy for me in terms of, because of connectedness, et cetera, people would reach out to me for work. The truth is the last few months, um, just an extraordinary array of projects have been coming my way that are really across the board interesting, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point during these conversations. Of a, Tremendous variety of nature. Some have to do with media, some have to do with politics, some have to do with culture. So um, it's so uh, I guess as they come up in conversation, we could talk about them individually. But there's a big big array of projects. All right, good. Let's let's see if we can if we can make that happen, Jeff. Uh, as you know, one of the you know it's, you and I can talk and have spoken for for hours on end about all kinds of things, and 
we could do that here too, but I do try to, you know, what's interesting to me is when I ask people to be on the podcast, they almost always ask me, what's it about? Which I find fascinating because I would think, well, it's about me. I'm Ron Coleman. <laughs> and somehow that, but so what you have to do is pretend that it's about a, a subject and then it can be about you, Ron Coleman. And of course, even if to the extent that your guests are great, it's how Ron Coleman does a great job with his guests because that is what the podcast is, is who's the guy. But since you you and I met on- at so a you're, saying, you're saying basically this is Seinfeld's podcast. It's a show about nothing. <laughs> it's a show about nothing that's going to make billions of dollars. Yeah. There you go. Um, and, and then be completely obs obscure in just a couple of years. <laughs> yes, with a, with a heavy dose of cynicism. Yeah, yeah, I get it. You, you and I met at a, at a Federalist Society executive. No, it was the New York, New York branch of the Federalist Society or, or a New York meeting of the Federalist Society, which I don't know if, when, the last time, you know, when the last time is they've had one of those. Uh, but we had, we had never crossed paths before. And uh, we instantly hit it off, and you know we've been we have worked together on a on a couple of projects, one involve uh, one involving media, mm -hmm. and uh, some some legal stuff that we've done together. You spent a lot of time as a lobbyist in Washington. Way to alienate people, Ron. Thanks. No. I <laughs> I'm, you're now going to tell us why you would never, why you would never do it now. No, I wouldn't tell you why I wouldn't do it now. I'll explain <laughs> why I did it. <laughs> and, <laughs> if you were doing um, it now, if you were doing it now, because now, so now that we've now that we've established the, it's only we're negotiating over price, which is always the case. If you were dropped into a super duper great assignment as the legislative representative of some esteemed institution or constituency, what would be the first? What do you think would be the first thing you'd find different? on Capitol Hill compared to when you were doing that regularly? Yeah, well, the obvious jump is the insane polarization. So it's it's a long time truism in Washington. And by way of background, um, I spent some time working on Capitol Hill. Actually, by way of bigger background, let's, let's tee this up about lobbying and working in Washington. Tee it. I was a absolutely miserable young associate at a law firm. And at a, at, I tried at a, a couple law, at a big law firm. Well, I, I tried a couple law firms. Right? I tried oh, big. I tried midsize. I tried corporate. I tried litigation. I just didn't like just didn't like the whole thing. And what really occurred to me that I didn't like about it was I didn't like being paid to take positions I didn't believe in, and push them not by dint of better argument, better case, but by being able to throw more money at a system that is where that really matters. You make so that sound like a bad that. thing. I, I, right, right, right. I know. And, and, and I love talking to you when you're not billing me by the hour. <laughs> so yes, I, um, I'm apropos of nothing. So the, the, I just didn't, I just felt uncomfortable. And there was this two things happened. One was a, an, an emotional, spiritual, I can't believe I'm really put here to use my best asset because physically I'm a klutz. So it's my brain <laughs> and, and use it for, you know, just, just put it up for hire. There seems something fundamentally wrong with that. And the other was, I remember one night and Ron, as you point out, I'm one of your older friends. So we go back to the time where it wasn't instantaneous, you know, words, word docs with correct, autocorrect, et cetera. You know, in spell check, we actually had armies of 
professional proofreader sitting in the bowels of the building right. who would go over documents and we'd wait for them to turn them around and they'd do the word processing and then we'd have to review it because, of course, you still have to have some junior associate whose butt is on the line, right? Right. For, right? So who's responsible for any mistakes that they make. And so it's, you're essentially a highly overeducated, glorified, and yet undertrained proofreader. <laughs> And so you're not good at this, but you're responsible for it. And so what but we especially do is in like, your case, Jeff, because you went to Yale Law School. Oh, thanks. So um, that's true. So we're sitting there and, and uh, with a couple of friends, also junior associates uh, in the library at three in the morning, waiting for a document to be turned around. And I'm reading some issue of some American lawyer or something like that about the richest or the most successful lawyer of that year. Some litigator who'd made some ungodly sum of, of tens or hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and everyone was ooing and eyeing. And I just felt miserable as morose thinking, God, he's 52. If I'm 52 and I'm still doing this, I'm going to kill myself. And that was a big moment of clarity, which is here is literally the most successful lawyer in the richest country in the world. And his life looks like misery to me. Why would I continue this for another moment? And that was the moment where I started looking for alternatives. And uh, as you say, I went to Yale. So a lot of Yaleys don't go into actual regular legal practice. And the friends who seemed to be having the most fun were the ones working in Washington. And I went down to Washington and met a couple of people. Uh, I, I could have easily ended up working up for a Democrat as, as, as easily as a Republican. I, I didn't have a thought in the world about policy or politics. I ended up working for a moderate Republican, Jack Danforth, senator from Missouri. And uh, he taught me a lot about life because uh, not only is he a U.S. senator, but um, also just a very different culture, right? I mean, he's he's Mayflower on both sides of his life, the heir to the Ralston Purina fortune, and an Episcopal priest. So very different from, you know, my my New York background. And uh, I just learned a tremendous amount. And because he was so middle of the road and got along with both sides of the aisle in a way that today doesn't exist. It was a way to really focus on policy, and, uh, and that's where things got started. So what I learned was, when I left Capitol Hill, because I'm going to—I know I'm rambling. We're talking about lobbying. When I left Capitol Hill, my first job after Capitol Hill was I was recruited to come work at Court TV. This will really date us, Ron. Court TV, and I started there the day of the OJ trial, and their whole issue was a legislative, regulatory, media. Um, perception issue, which is should cameras be in courtrooms? And I started working on that. And lobbying, I see, is only like one aspect of what I do, which is really issue campaigns, campaign on big ideas across America, because the same argument had to work in very liberal states and very conservative states. So I had to come up with an argument that worked in Mississippi and Maryland. And that's where I first learned the art of of defining a narrative and finding a narrative that actually unites people uh, mostly by finding what it is they're most concerned about in the world. And it turns out right wing or left wing, most people are concerned about the same thing. The story they tell themselves about how the world works is different. Well, that's fascinating. I never, I never thought about it that way. But that's a gigantic difference though, as it turns out. But it's, it, seems to, it, it seems that it's a much bigger difference now. Maybe we're leading up to your answer to, to my question, which was what would be different? You said polarization. So let's see if we can maybe fast forward a little bit to, so you were doing the cameras in court. 
project, which, you know, I think you were busy with, I guess, in another iteration when you and I met, you'd come back to that when, when you're working for Channel Channel One. It might be. I think I, it might have it might have dated back to that. I think we might have met over there because I, I actually was working with the Federal Society on the issue. Look, it, let me let me ex, ex, explore the concept because it relates to a lot of things you and I talk about when we're not being recorded also. <laughs> Very good. You know we're being recorded. <laughs> it, yeah, we are being recorded. That's what I hear, right? Um, why, do people think this is live? <laughs> <laughs> so the, what, what I mean by, by way of example, and once I say this becomes apparent to people, but I think people haven't thought of this. So people say, you know, conservatives don't trust government and liberals trust government. Well, that's not true. Conservatives absolutely trust certain parts of government. Conservatives trust the military, they trust law enforcement. What they're not interested in is social engineering and redistribution of wealth, okay? Liberals, they don't trust government, right? I mean, sure, they trust redistribution of wealth and social engineering, but they don't trust military and law enforcement. So it, the, the narratives actually, when you dig down deeper, you realize that in my case, uh, you know, for 20 some odd years, the media had spent a fortune on lobbying this issue of cameras in the courtroom. And all they were doing was talking about the First Amendment. And I just fired all those lobbyists because why are you lobbying about the First Amendment? If you have a First Amendment argument, you litigate it. Mm -hmm. But the answer is the judges were on the other side of this issue in many cases. Right. They didn't want to have scrutiny. And so um, instead, we, I, I thought, what's the argument here? And the question is, people don't trust the judges. For conservatives, they don't trust judges who legislate from the bench. And for liberals, they don't trust the way minorities are treated in the courtrooms. And so it's literally the same argument, which is the more Americans are able to actually scrutinize what takes place in court, the better the system works. And that's an argument that both sides found compelling. And so even against the backdrop of, <laughs> there were people writing about this, how come while this OJ trial is a circus, uh, laws are being changed to allow more camera access. It's honestly, this argument was working because it's the truth. What's the truth? Well, it's the truth that it, you know, the argument was really the truth, which is that people, in, at, at the end of the day, people harbor grave misgivings about the way the courts work. The problem is people are divided, and this goes back to polarization. People are divided about what it is they're afraid of, okay? But they share a concern about the way the courts work. And therefore, finding an answer, if you keep on climbing higher up the fear tree, like there's a decision tree, I think there's a fear tree, okay? You'll find what unites people. And if you focus on that, you can actually bring people together. Today, going back to your question about polarization, today, that's become much harder. Because today, even if people agree on the same set of concerns, they will disagree for the sake of disagreeing with the other side. And so what you're finding increasingly in public policy and in public discourse is, wait, why was this bad when he said it, but it's okay now? Mm -hmm. Especially, for example, as it relates to Trump, but also as related to Obama, okay? Mm -hmm. Why is something that this guy says automatically, not I suspect his motivations for it, or I'm going to scrutinize it 17 times because of who says it. It's no, once this position is taken, I am now automatically on the other side. Well, I think by pointing out that that this is something that there's no I think I don't think there's any question that there have always that there have been conservatives who did it with Obama, 
and conservatives who did it with Clinton, and there were certainly liberals who did it with Bush. Name your Bush. Um, I think people, it's a very sloppy kind of thinking that people engage in where they blame the fact that we're at this polarization point on some something about Donald Trump. And that's just so preposterous. You can't even have you can't even have lived through the Bush years, much less the Reagan years, if you think that. And yet the vast majority of people who say it, I don't believe they think it at all. And many of them are, are conservatives or, or 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 call themselves conservatives. This this level of polarization has been increasing steadily. Uh, you know, since the you know, if there was ever a sort of era of good feelings, maybe in the 1970s. Uh, you know, I, I'm a little bit skeptical about that as well, but it wasn't that way under under Reagan. I mean, they, they were every bit as vicious with him as they were, and he was genial. Oh, no question. No, no question, Ron. Look, here's what I think really happened is Trump was part of their ecosystem, okay? And and what he did- Explain it. Explain what you mean, because I see, I see what you, I see several reasons why that might be true, but- Trump, Well, Trump was, let's face it, Trump was a media celebrity. Okay. Right. He was a celebrity in every sense of the word. It wasn't just because he was wealthy. It wasn't because he was in real estate. It's because he was also, at, or, or that he was an entertainer. That, well, that's the point. The point is, the point is, you know, we live in a society in which there's the absolute value of notoriety. Like, it doesn't matter if you, if you made a hundred billion dollars or you lost a hundred billion dollars, you're still going to be, you know, on the same talk shows. And, and it, 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 it's, there's the absolute value of notoriety. Okay, mm -hmm. celebrity is as its own uh, is its own currency, right? And I mean, look at the Kardashians, right? I mean, but there's a million examples. They just read something yesterday: the Kardashian decade. <laughs> I mean, it's it's extraordinarily, but yeah, but it's horrifying to think about that. And in this culture, Donald Trump, not because he was a successful businessman, he actually dominated as as a hugely successful celebrity. And he wasn't celebrity you love to love. He was a celebrity you love to hate, right? Because that was his shtick. You, you know, you're fired, right? Okay, and it doesn't matter. He was, he was, you know, he was, he was loud. He was egotistical. He was brash, and people loved to hate it, or they loved it. Either way, that's what he was, and he turned on them. Okay, now he turned on them because as soon as he ran as a Republican, they turned on him, and he would have easily, I believe worked with the left on a whole array of priorities for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and they just shut him down and, and they treated him so abusively. I mean, Lara Trump, his daughter-in-law, Eric's wife. So she was at CBS News. I was at CBS News. We didn't overlap, but we knew a lot, a lot of the same people. And we spoke about this afterwards. And she said, you know, from one day to the next, her colleagues at CBS who liked her, trusted her the same way she liked them and trusted them, all of a sudden she became an absolute outcast. She was demonized immediately because her father-in-law was running for office as a Republican. And so it was a combination of that and Trump's brashness where, you know, there was a 17-person primary on the Republican side, and a lot of them were promising to fight political correctness. Trump didn't promise to fight it. Every time he opened his mouth, he launched another barrage of rockets against the left. All right, against political correctness. Right. Not in so much, right? And so that was unforgivable. And so they they essentially he wasn't attacking them. He was he was for the first time in decades defending against their decades of attack on reality, their decades of pushing a narrative of garbage. And he, you know, and and he didn't hesitate. He just struck back. And I'm not 
there's a lot about the way he did it that we can criticize. But mm -hmm. in terms of what's happened, he it's not so much that he created polarization. He's the first one to respond. Bingo. In kind. Jeff, when are you going to say something I disagree with? <laughs> it doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be today. But now let's now let's fast forward. Sure. To the great culture war over cancellation. In other words, they they have essentially, for all practical, I mean, look, you've seen a gazillion tweets from me on this topic that that there are media legacy brands like your old employer CBS that bear virtually no cultural or functional relationship to the CBS that existed when you and I were growing up. I don't want to in any, uh, wax overly nostalgic for Walter Cronkite, but it's whatever it is now, it, it, it isn't that. They have succeeded, these, these, these media legacy brands that, that again, they do other things than, from what they once did, but they're still in the eyes of many, many millions of people the place you go for legitimate information. And then on the other hand, there's social media, which to a large extent, they have succeeded in co-opting and getting rid of this, you know, of, of, of many dissenting voices, one of them including Trump himself, which is an incredible sign of weakness. I mean, going back to your court cameras in the courts thing, granting you the premise, which I'm not sure I necessarily do big picture, that the reason not to have, that the only reason judges didn't want to have cameras in the courts or not maybe the only reason was that the predominant reason they didn't want to have cameras in the courts because it was because they didn't they didn't want people to see what, what a joke the system was or how badly they were doing or whatever the case may be when you are shutting down communication it is a sign of weakness it's a sign of vulnerability but if you can succeed in shutting it down do you do you win or in the long run do you end up losing because of that vulnerability right so from the specific to the general, I mean, in specific, let me, let me be clear. I'm not suggesting that all judges uh, feel this way. What I'm suggesting is that I was making an argument that would be successful. For example, when you tell a congressman who is constantly running because there are elections every two years and they're constantly under, feel under pressure and scrutiny, that the reason judges don't want cameras in the courtroom is because they say they don't want political pressure. That's going to that's mm -hmm. win you that guy's vote. Okay, so, but with the judges, to, to be fair, uh, for example, in the Supreme Court, I met with uh, Rehnquist when he was Chief Justice, and he was perfectly willing to have a camera in the Supreme Court. He was showing us where he would put it. But he said, until we have all nine justices, all nine, total consensus, we are going to be united against it. So, the, and, and I, I'm not complaining about that sense of, you know, you know collegiality, et cetera. That's fine. But I, it does trouble me that that leaves it to, you know, the Linda Greenhouses of the world to be able to mm. tell America what's taking place in the most important court, you know, in, in the third branch. That's, that's, that's a problem. We should be able to see it. Uh, in fact, I, I, ironically, if there's one court, if there is one court that should be live on TV, it's that one. I agree. Because there are zero surprises. Correct. No one is going to make a mistake introducing uh, an exhibit into evidence. No one's going to knock his water over and we have to take a recess. It's everything that's going to happen has been pre-planned and pre-staged for months. But I want and to be yet, clear about something else, Ron. I want to be clear. It was never our position as a corporation. It was never my position personally that cameras should be mandated in the courtroom. Our position was judges should have discretion to allow cameras in the courtroom. That's it. 
as opposed to rules being made. And the, they were making those rules because some judges wanted it, some judges didn't want it, and and they didn't want to make those judges didn't want to feel the pressure. And my view is, of course, the judge judges decide whether evidence should be allowed in the court, right? So if judges are making that decision, if there's truly a reason that it would affect the integrity of a proceeding, then the judge should have the ability to exclude the camera. But barring that, the default should be these are public and people should have a right to see it. And famously in America, right, when America was first started, there were two big buildings in every town or in every center. There was a big church, big enough to, for everyone to gather in, and there was a big courthouse, big enough for everyone to gather in because justice had to be seen to be done. We've moved away from that. And, and this goes back to the media problem. Now we have intermediaries who are telling us what takes place. And you've been in courtrooms, I've been in courtrooms uh, on high profile uh, matters, slants, right? And you know that what the media has to say about it <laughs> barely ever reflects what actually took place. Mostly, mostly because they don't know. They, don't, they can't understand it. And, uh, you know, even Linda Greenhouse, I think, is Pastor Prime with all due respect. You know, and, and, the, and the people who are not covering the legal bee are, you know, they, they don't get it. Well, I want to take, you know, believe it or not, as always happens when you and I are speaking, we're beginning to, 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 to run a little bit uh, out of time. I want to now try to a little bit fast forward these observations and see if there's any way we can apply them to what's going on now in social media with the cancel culture, with, with censorship, with, with you know, the, the, the political correctness stuff, as we used to call it. Do you think there's anything we can learn from that that applies to where we are now? Um, you can say no. No, no, I, I, listen, you know, I, I'm sitting here uh, looking at, you know, the, the book called, you know, Barbarians at the Gate, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I keep on hearing people saying barbarians are at the gate, et cetera. And I don't know they're wrong. The barbarians are sitting on the throne. Right. Okay. We are, the, we are, and I think of it as normals, okay? People whose narrative actually, actually bears a direct relationship to empirical reality, mm -hmm. okay? We've essentially lost already. Can we recapture our culture? I am very pessimistic about it. Mm -hmm. We've lost, okay? And, and this has to do with, you know, media narrative and political narrative and social narrative that's been pushed in academia, et cetera, for decades. And, you know, among conservatives, sometimes people make this, uh, I think of it's whistling past the graveyard joke, yeah, but we've got all the guns, okay? Well, that's that's a dumb joke because it has nothing to do with who has all the guns. It has to do with, it has, it has to do with who, who has the narrative, who, has, who controls reality. Mm -hmm. And as we see increasingly, um, and, and this has to do with cancel culture. This has to do with, you know, voices that can't be heard. You can't talk about whether or not hydroxychloroquine is, is valuable as a treatment because once Donald Trump utters it, science is out the window, right? right. You can't talk about, and I'm not saying it is or it isn't effective. I'm saying you, there's no way to know, right? Right? Because because there's there's so much of an incentive for this story, and it goes it it goes so deep, right? The the um, a friend of mine wrote a spectacular piece, right? She's trained as as she is she practices as a doctor, and she's trained Stanford lawyer, and she wrote a piece saying, you know, it took me five minutes or less on Google once I heard that there was an outbreak of a virus, a SARS-like virus in China, in Wuhan, to discover that there's, you know, a level four laboratory that just opened up there. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Every journalist should have known this is something to look at. Well, into. this is the John, Stu the John Stewart rant that was popular 
It was well, right, but this is but this was a year right. This is over a year ago, and she's and she goes. I don't know why. She says, "I'm not saying this is what happened, but I'm saying why are we discounting it?" Except, you know, the only time it ever comes up is to mock it and say it's a conspiracy theory when it's by far sort of the Occam's razor most likely reality. I'm not assigning intention; just saying that's where viruses escape from. Right. Okay. And it's it's a it's a very well thought out piece. You know, for her for her troubles, you know, she was thrown out of her job as a physician. Right. Wow. It's it's yeah. So the, the cancel culture again, like everything else, when the left starts talking about a phenomenon in an accusatory way, they're projecting. So when they talk about, you know, Donald Trump doesn't get reelected, there's going to be violence in the streets. Well, that's, that's, that's projecting because we saw there was violence in the streets that they were, that they were doing, right? And we saw the massive well, violence. Especially streets, when, it, it, also- when it looked as if, because they didn't, they didn't know the fix was in, it looked as if the Biden was absolutely going to lose. So that's what that violence well, was right. about. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. I mean, so the the well, although they're setting up a narrative that Biden was absolutely going to win, they were setting up a narrative that he was crushing it. He was twelve points ahead here and seven points ahead. There was never it was never that. Right. And again, I'm, this is not a discussion about was the election stolen. No, was that's it, right. That's the that's point. Right. The point is, there's a narrative that was presenting the idea that Biden was a shoe in, that he was going to have a, a record, you know, shoeing in these states, with, and none of that was true. Right. All right. The polling was miserably manipulated. And I've done this long enough to know how those polls are manipulated. Anyway, I actually want to move to something else, though, Ron, if I can. I know this is your, this is about you. No, it's about, no, Jeff, it's about my experience with you. Ah, wow. It's so so beautiful. Um, What I want to say is, I challenge you to something before we started, but but now I'm afraid we actually were too successful. You know, that is so... You know what kind of people say things like that? Pushy New York Jews. Yeah, well, if I knew any pushy New York Jews, you know, I would cancel them. <laughs> but <laughs> right, I, I, before before the podcast started, right? I before we started, I, I challenged you to see how far we, how long we could talk about normal people subjects without getting Jewy. Okay, right. But actually, I think. To me, <laughs> part of what makes you interesting, I think, to people, and I know what makes me interesting to people, is the fact that we have this whole inside-outside reality where, you know, we live in these two completely different worlds. Uh, and um, and you were just talking about the normal. We, we're right. the normies. We, 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 the, you know, and I, you, I heard what you were thinking, which is that we actually, we feel as if we Orthodox Jews, we strictly Orthodox Jews, feel as if we're a very, very good representation of what were considered to be bourgeois values in Europe and the United States the last few hundred years in terms of our family lives. And you mentioned too, there were always two big buildings in the town, the church and the, so now it would be two buildings in the town. There's there's the you know the the the, the shul I want to go into and the shul I don't want to go into <laughs> right and the, and, and the wedding hall that I can't get a reservation for <laughs> right so right, right, so but, the kosher restaurant you, yeah that I don't trust and, but you yeah. want but yes but keep going where you're going because you and I also discussed no the, I mean I just think, I think I think what what people find interesting is you know, look as you say we're both we're both uh, strictly observant we both raise our families in, in more or less very similar kind of circumstances, send their kids to, to similar kinds of institutions, um, largely to, to actually protect them, to, to avoid uh, what, we, what we saw 
in our own educations, right? We, we both, you know, I, I mean, I grew up uh, religious and I know that you sort of came to it, uh, observant that you came to it, but, but we both spent time in these elite Ivy League secular institutions, which are supposed to be the pinnacle, right? right? And yet, from my perspective, with all respect to my very clever and good friends from law school, uh, you know, I was stunned at, um, at what passes for scholarship in those institutions. And, you know, it's a pet peeve of mine. I'll see these, these polls about how Jews vote. And they'll say, you know, the more educated you are, right, the more years of education you have, the more you'll vote Democrat. And I'm thinking, no, what you really mean is the more you've been subjected to that kind of brainwashing and the less you've actually been Jewishly educated. Our kids may not be Jewishly educated, you know, may not be secularly educated in the way they think, but they are spending six, seven, eight, ten years post high school in actual scholarship. And that's totally disregarded when they talk about education. Right. So now looking at the polling, they'll say, well, you know, the more educated Jews, and, and that's supposed to send you a, a message that, yeah, well, sure, the less educated, benighted ones, right, those Orthodox Jews, they're the ones that have these series of less educated, benighted ideas. How about, no, <laughs> it's the ones who actually have a clue because they're, they've been completely steeped in, in the history of our people and our faith. But also in, 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 in the use of their brains, in, 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 in rigorous logical analysis. Right. I mean, I, I had a son who, who, before he started law school, asked me what, what, what that culture shock was going to be like. And, uh, and one of the first things he reported, I mean, I told him what I, what I thought. And when he, what he was stunned at was the absolute um, rule. I mean, this was a rule that disagreement was violence. Now, in yeshiva, you desperately try to find, right? You desperately try to find a study partner with whom you're going to fight. I mean, like fight and, and, and you know, emotionally, you know, really, really pummel each other intellectually. And if, when you find someone that you cling, you cling to them because that disagreement is how you grow, is how you learn, right? right. <laughs> that intellectual, it's this intellectual ludus with gladiators, you know? And, and we've lost that. And, 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 and you know, this is one of the reasons why people say to me, you know, Ron, why are you still on Twitter? Uh, you know, it's just a matter of time until they kick you off. Why don't you, why don't you go to Parler? Why don't you, you know, and, and you know, I'm involved with CloudHub, but you know, what I find is that by going to a, going to a, a social media platform where most of the people are more or less in agreement with me, I'm not, it's not fun. It's not interesting. I, there's no friction. There's no challenge. You know, am I claiming that I'm like the most open-minded guy in the world and I'm going to be, someone is going to talk me into supporting Ka Kamala Harris uh, uh, presidency? Uh, no, of course not. I, I'm, I'm not claiming to be that open-minded, but I am claiming that I'm prepared to have a, a bona fide discussion about why. Right. But see, that's threatening. Okay. That's threatening to the left because I'll give you an example, right? If you, if you came to me, right, your, your, your listeners may not know what I look like, but they know what you look like, right? <laughs> so if you came to me and said, Jeff, um, don't call me Ron anymore, call me Rita, and I'm a woman, <laughs> okay? I, would, I wouldn't be insulted or threatened by it, right? It wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt me at all. I would feel, oh, poor Ron, you know, I wonder if I could help him, okay? Mm -hmm. Nor would I make the mistake of thinking Ron's now a woman, okay? And I'd say, oh, I really want to help Ron because he's going through something. Okay, but I wouldn't be threatened by it. But if I say to you, no, you're not, 
right? You're threatened by it because I'm not threatened by it because I have empirical reality, which makes me very comfortable knowing that, you know, based on not just your appearance, but, you know, chromosomes, et cetera, et cetera, you're a man, okay? You have nothing but narrative. And the left has nothing but narrative on everything, from foreign policy to domestic policy to gender politics. They, they have nothing but narrative. And so when they say, you know, Ben Shapiro speaking on a college campus is violence, they actually perceive it as violence because it's, it's, I really believe this is like a survival mechanism for them, which goes back to the idea that, yeah, conservatives might feel like they have the guns, but the other side already understands and has for a long time that they're involved in a, in a, in a fight for survival. And so, of course, they're going to cancel. Right, because because these discussions actually they feel that they're being annihilated in these discussions. Their their very identity is being challenged. Their existence is being challenged. That's why they block. They block. They yeah. block. So yeah. is Jeff, is there a way out? Do you think you said you're pessimistic on the culture? Is there a practical way for us to survive this moment? At least you know so that we can we can go to the grave having some hope that absent a you know, an, an event of, of, of massive theological significance uh, that our children will have something like a free country to live in. I think it's behind us already. I think that we're, we, are, we are through, we are through to the other side and have been for a while. And all we have left now is a little bit of inertia. But um, no, I, I mean, I, that doesn't, I haven't given up because you say absent some theological event, it doesn't have to be an obvious theological event. God works through the world, which is why half the world believes he's there and half the world doesn't. But um, again, we all have the narrative. <laughs> it just depends on how we, we, we arrange the story. And you can't really argue from fact to prove or disprove design or God or anything like that. People either believe or they don't believe. We all have the same set of facts to work from. And that is, that is the perfect way for us to end our discussion because we st we started talking about culmination and uh that's where we are that, you know it, i mean would you not agree that we are obligated nonetheless to complete the work even if we can't well be we're obligated to, to spend our lives in this right that's what i said i i didn't want to be put in this world just to to do what somebody want is paying me to do whether i believed in it or not we're obligated to to speak and live the truth as we see it and uh you know what it is ron even if you think, how can I make a difference? If someone you loved was being, their name was being denigrated publicly, you would, you would lash out, you would speak out simply because you couldn't bear it. And um, we have to love truth. That's, you know, we have to love truth. We have to love America. Um, those of us who are religious, especially we have to love God. And, uh, and so you have to speak the truth. And, uh, and, and worry later, I mean, try and do it effectively for sure. But you can't, you can't, you can't uh, plan to have the whole end game. Um, and my, I, like I said, I'm pessimistic. I think I'm realistic. But that doesn't mean uh, I or anybody else should uh, should stop standing up for what's right. Perfect, Jeff. Have a great Shabbos. You too. Great talking to you. We'll definitely do this again. <laughs> okay, my friend. As well, long as I don't get canceled. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, then we'll do it on parlor. Okay. <laughs> Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time 
I'm with Coleman Nation Podcast, and have a great day.